This is an ABC podcast. With their identities concealed behind white balaclavas and red masks, exiled Belarusian singers in Europe are using music to keep the spirit of protest alive. Volny Kor, the Belarusian free choir, emerged as a symbol of freedom in the 2020 popular uprising against dictator Alexander Lukashenko. Their pop-up performances in Minsk public spaces were a defiant note as the regime brutally silenced the largely peaceful protesters. Little did Belarusians or the West realise then the failed revolution in the former Soviet state had set the stage for Europe's largest scale war in decades and a direct challenge to the international security order. Hello, I'm Cathy Van Extel and welcome to Rear Vision. Three years ago, the world was surprised by the largest anti-government protests in the history of Belarus over a rigged presidential election that returned Alexander Lukashenko and his brutal regime for a sixth term in office. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, this landlocked country, frequently overlooked by the West, has been viewed as a buffer between Europe and Russia sharing borders with Poland, Lithuania and Latvia to the west and north, Russia to the east and Ukraine to the south. This episode of Rear Vision looks at how Belarus came to be a key player in the Ukraine war and the story behind Lukashenko's high-stakes game of cat and mouse with Russian President Vladimir Putin. The mighty flyer trio of Boris Yeltsin, Russia, Leonid Kravchuk, Ukraine and Stanislav Shuchkevich, Belorussia, preside over 70% of what was Soviet territory. The three leaders gathered in Minsk, capital of Belorussia, symbolically underlining their break with Moscow. They signed an agreement to create a new Commonwealth, a death certificate for the state that Lenin founded in 1922. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union, Belarus became an independent state in 1991. And more so than many other former Soviet republics, the challenge for Belarus was to revive its weakened national identity. For nearly 200 years, with the exception of periods of German occupation in both world wars, Belarus had been under Russian rule. Starting afresh, the new republic drew on its medieval history, and that required a name change they turned to the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, a European state that existed between the 13th and 18th centuries, encompassing much of today's Eastern Europe, including Belarus. Historian Rustas Kamantajas is the director of the Institute of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, a research organisation. He says at independence, the 19th century Russian name Belarus, or White Russia, was discarded in favour of an earlier name with European origins. We got two different names for Belarus today in English language. So it's White Russia and Belarus. Uh, this term White Russia, it was constructed by Russians, especially through the 19th century, 
just to show that Belarus is a part of big Russia. Through the 19th century, they were integrating Belarusian culture and Belarusian nation into Russia by destroying their uh, pro-Western cultural features uh, like Catholicism, like Unitarian religion and many other, and language also. But Belarusians resisted and uh, that is why after 1990, so after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they insisted uh, calling them not Russia, but Belarus. So this is an ancient name. Unlike many of the Eastern European states, Belarus's history as an independent nation prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union is fiercely contested. In the Russian version, Belarus is a Soviet creation, born of the 1917 Russian Revolution, while Belarusian nationalists trace their history back to the 10th century. Regardless, Rustus Kamantyagis says more than 80% of the population identifies as Belarusian, and national identity is strong. Most of people uh, who live today in Belarus, it's more than 80% of all population of Belarus, they treat themselves Belarusians. Problem is, they speak different languages and got different religious identities. A Belarusian could be a person who speaks Russian and who is from Orthodox religion, like, like Russians. But also a Belarusian uh, can be a person who is a Catholic who speaks Belarusian or even Polish language. But still there exists this Belarusian identity. Even those people who speak Russian, they are sure that they are not Russians. So when Belarus achieved independence in 1991, how strong was the nationalist movement then and how does it compare with the present-day opposition movement? Uh, it was not strong compared to Ukrainian national movement, compared to Lithuanian, Latvian, uh, Polish national movement. Of course, uh, Belarusian national movement was uh, the weakest. That's why there appeared the possibility for Lukashenko to pop up and you know, to take power. This pro-Soviet, actually, with pro-Soviet ideology. Today, of course, the national movement is much stronger. The identity and the pretensions are much bigger and they are much more consolidated. They, they know much better what they want than it was at the beginning of 1990s. When hundreds of thousands of Belarusians took to the streets in 2020 during the nation's biggest ever protests, many embraced their pre-Russian history by wearing traditional colours and symbols or waving the banned red and white flag. It was a popular uprising against President Alexander Lukashenko, who had ruled with an iron fist since the nation's first and arguably only democratic election in 1994. Back then, the 39-year-old former communist collective farm manager campaigned as a man of the people. Renowned Belarus observer Professor David Marples, an analyst and historian with Canada's University of Alberta, says Lukashenko wasted no time dismantling the fledgling republic's democratic institutions and stifling Belarusian culture. Lukashenko had been the chairman of a committee on corruption for the Belarusian parliament. So he got in and subsequently he more or less killed off Belarusian culture, Belarusian language and the teaching of Belarusian in schools. And today 
even speaking Belarusian language in the streets of Minsk, for example, is quite dangerous because you're immediately associated with the opposition. Lukashenko took over virtually all the media. I mean, in the 90s, he replaced every editor of all the major newspapers with his own people. He controlled the TV stations. And at the same time, Russian television was also a very strong influential factor as it remains today. And this has only been further emphasized with the introduction of social media, where Russian bots and Russian materials that are coming off YouTube are predominantly from Russia. And since 2020, when there was the mass uprising, all the media outlets in Belarus are being run by people from Moscow, St. Petersburg and other parts of Russia. Journalists and bloggers are among the thousands of Belarusians who've been jailed in the wake of the 2020 uprising. Up to 500,000 Belarusians have been forced to flee to other parts of Europe and the US for their own safety. Artyom Schreibman is one of them. He lives in exile in Poland. The political and media analyst says while Lukashenko has embraced Belarus's Soviet past and Russia's economic and military support, he has long resisted attempts by Vladimir Putin to seize greater control of Belarus. Putin, 20 years ago, in 2002, he, for the first time, requested for Belarus to join Russia as six or seven regions. Lukashenko refused because Lukashenko already was and always was an autocratic leader. He was sometimes labeled as the last Europe's dictator. And autocrats are not very good at sharing power. For a couple of years, I think till the mid to southerns, they were looking for formats, how it can work, how, how the union can be built without compromising sovereignty of each side, which is impossible when you have two such uneven partners. And then starting from 2006, 2007, the relationship gets sour. There are I mean, constant trade wars. Disputes around energy prices started to happen regularly. And then for 15 years, the relationship were like a roller coaster, basically, where you have like periods of good, decent cooperation without any disputes. And then periods where Lukashenko and Putin just couldn't meet, where it, it was exchange of propaganda attacks in two countries against each other. But of course, it all changed after 2020. And since then, his ability to maneuver in the foreign policy was shrunk to almost zero. I think it's the most important event in the independence period. Quite suddenly, Lukashenko was out of touch with his population. And it really started, I would say, around COVID. Because COVID hit Belarus extremely hard and Lukashenko chose to ignore it. He decided that there was no such thing. It was a psychosis and people should go to the countryside, go to the sauna, drink vodka and, and other futile things like that. And it meant that the population had no resources. There were no clinics to go to. There were no vaccinations that were reaching Belarus. The local authorities began to take matters into their own hands. And this indicated that what Lukashenko used to call a social contract that is, the regime will look after the people, they will provide a, an average wage and a pension, and in return, you accept the political authority of Lukashenko and his regime. This was no longer the case. And in this election, Lukashenko announced that 
that he'd won 80% of the vote. I mean, it was simply outrageous. And therefore, people were prepared to protest like never before. And on a couple of occasions, it looked like they might succeed. But Vladimir Putin decided to support Lukashenko, offered his security forces to put down protests if needed. And it meant that Lukashenko suddenly had some really major backing. And therefore, he, he decided to use extreme force to put down the uprising, which he did. He inaugurated himself as president, really only with the help of Russia. And that's the important point, isn't it, that he survived those protests because of the support of Russia? Yeah, that's absolutely the case. In the past, his relations with Putin have been varied. I mean, they were never very close. They didn't seem to like each other. And at the start of 2020 elections, Lukashenko actually arrested three members of the Wagner private military corporation in Minsk because he thought they were going to start a revolution against him. But gradually, it was realized, I think, in Moscow that it was either going to be Lukashenko or it was going to be this opposition figure who they could no longer count on, really, as being a, a potential ally. So Moscow came down very strongly on Lukashenko's side. And this has changed everything in Belarus because now it's like a Moscow puppet regime, which it certainly wasn't the case before. And since then, their relationship with Putin was quite good. There haven't been any serious disputes since 2020 between Minsk and Moscow. And the war was the facilitation of Belarus. I think would hardly be possible without this level of dependence of Lukashenko on Putin. Because before 2020, it is hard to imagine that Lukashenko would simply obediently give his territory to Russian troops to invade the neighboring country. Because there was way more maneuvering, way more balancing happening in Minsk. But by 2022, all this space for maneuver was lost. And so you see now a classic vessel state. The 2020 uprising wasn't only a threat to the Belarusian strongman and his regime. For Putin, already exercised over Ukraine's increasing alignment with the West, the Belarus unrest raised the spectre of another former Soviet state turning away from Russia. Veteran foreign policy analyst James Scher from the Estonian-based International Centre for Defence and Security says the failed revolution shocked Moscow enough to become an important motivating factor in Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. The Russians understood that Belarus is the most autocratic and most stable of the post-Soviet states. And so therefore what happened in 2020 with these enormous protests, seemingly out of the blue, that surprised most people, surprised most experts, incidentally, had a completely shattering impact and traumatic impact in Moscow. Although there are many compelling reasons why Russia returned to war on a much bigger scale in Ukraine in February 2022, the Belarusian protests are certainly one of the more important ones. Does that tell us then that Putin needs Lukashenko as much as Lukashenko needs Putin? Yes, unfortunately, because you see, the interesting point about Lukashenko is that he solidified his um, very autocratic authority over Belarus initially by removing all of Russia's people, beginning with what is still called in Belarus the KGB. So he's always been a very tough customer. You know, nevertheless, at the same time, uh, Lukashenko is a founder 
of the Union State project with Russia. He understands it very differently. He sees the Union State as two equal parts, Belarus and Russia. Putin's view of the Union State is right. Your six oblasts, your six regions dissolve into our 80-something <laughs> regions, and that's what we mean. He, he, a strong supporter of the Central Security Treaty Organization, which is a kind of deceptive equivalent of NATO, and uh, the Eurasian Customs Union. And yet he has established his corner and he's fought it very well. And so in Moscow, they've never liked him, but they need him. Like Ukraine, Belarus plays into Vladimir Putin's vision of a restored Russian empire. It's a state of immense strategic and geopolitical importance to Moscow, sandwiched between Russia and several NATO member states, Lithuania, Latvia and Poland. Significantly, Belarus shares a 1,000-kilometre border with Ukraine, providing Russia with the shortest possible land route to Ukraine's capital, Kyiv. I've decided to conduct a special military operation. Just before five in the morning Ukraine time, President Putin effectively declared war. Minutes later... Cities across the country came under fire. Oh, that's a missile, that's a missile, that's a missile. While oceans away, the UN Security Council was in session. This is a perilous moment, and we're here for one reason and one reason only, to ask Russia to stop. Far from stopping, Russia has launched what Ukraine calls a full-scale invasion. Missiles have struck multiple cities, including the capital, Kyiv. There are reports of large, widespread explosions. In the weeks leading up to the February 2022 invasion of Ukraine, Belarus hosted joint training exercises with Russian troops, ultimately allowing Moscow to stage part of the invasion from its territory. Their close defence ties can be traced back to 1999, the year before Vladimir Putin succeeded Boris Yeltsin as president, when the two countries signed a state union agreement with the stated aim of integrating economic and defence policy. That initial treaty lacks substance, but over the past two decades, the two nations have edged closer to integration, while at the same time engaged in a dance over sovereignty. Artyom Schreibman says by 2022, Lukashenko had ceded so much control to Moscow in exchange for its support that politically he had no choice but to facilitate Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Of course, when you have 30,000-plus Russian troops on your territory and you are dependent on Russia with supplying you with basic energy resources and providing you with uh, almost unreplaceable market, then, of course, what, what choice do you have? Or you rebel and risk your own, uh, not just political, but maybe even physical survival. What kind of support is there among the population that remains in Belarus for this war? Could... Lukashenko send troops to Ukraine under Russian pressure? Well, yes, he could. His degree of autonomy and decision-making has been shrinking. And I can envision a situation where Russia just puts so much pressure on him that he is again faced with the choice of a political, and again, maybe not just political survival, or joining the war in this or that form with his own troops. 
So far, we haven't seen any evidence that Russia was exerting such pressure. Their relationship for the past year, 2022, were set many records in terms of how, how much subsidies Russia gave to Belarus. So it didn't look like a pressure campaign. It looked like more of a gratitude campaign where Russia just resolved all the kind of disputes that were pending in the relationship for years. They gave Lukashenko whatever he asked for. So, so far, Russia seems not to need Belarusian troops there so much. But if it changes, I think Russia have instruments to coerce him. However, getting to your first question, I don't think that this would be a very easy task for Russia, precisely because Belarusians, by and large, don't want their country to be participating in this war. And so with this public opinion, Lukashenko might face certain resistance from a public, but also from the military. I think that this is why he would probably resist Vladimir Putin's pushes. That's Vladimir Putin in March, at the start of the second year of the Ukraine war, announcing a plan to deploy tactical nuclear weapons on Belarusian territory. It was a move by Putin to raise the stakes. And Archim Schreibman suspects it was a unilateral decision, one that Lukashenko was forced to go along with. I'm not sure that Lukashenko wanted it announced in such a way, because Lukashenko has actually floated this possibility for more than a year before this. Uh, he even changed his constitution a year ago to allow for the possible deployment of nuclear weapons in Belarus. It happened even before the full-scale invasion. In a way, he always wanted to use this threat of Russian nukes in Belarus as the deterrent against the Western pressure. Putin announced it in a very, very unilateral way, seemingly without consulting with Lukashenko. He did it in a way where Belarus just had no choice but to take it as an order and start preparing the storage. At the same time, I think he will try to capitalize on this. He will try to use this if it ever comes to reality. So far, it's just a threat. But if it materializes, I think Lukashenko will definitely try to convert this into new rounds of Russian subsidies and of Russian support in exchange for this new level of engagement. Shocking scenes on the streets of Kyiv. Multiple explosions in the center of the capital rocked the In stark contrast to the military bombardment of Ukraine, Russia's grab for power in Belarus has been described as a silent invasion. Until a few years ago, Europe accounted for 40% of Belarus's trade. But that changed with tough sanctions imposed after the 2021 act of aircraft piracy by Lukashenko, which saw a Ryanair flight diverted to Minsk under the guise of a Hamas bomb threat so authorities could arrest a dissident journalist and his partner. David Marples says the European sanctions have left Belarus with few options. I think their problem in some ways, because now Belarus has got no alternative. It cannot approach Europe. The door is simply closed and therefore it can only go to Russia. You know, you could at some point suggest you release all those political prisoners and allow free elections, we will open the doors back to you and we will trade with you, etc. You can export your goods. But unfortunately, Europe is completely preoccupied with what's happening to Ukraine and Belarus is now more or less forgotten completely. And yet it's a, a key piece of the Ukrainian conflict. It's a key piece and it always will be. And that is a key border for Ukraine, a huge border. 
And it's always been a peaceful one until 2020. And now it's a very hostile border. And Ukraine has to keep forces there just in the event that troops come once again from the north into Ukraine. Are there ties between Ukraine and the Belarus opposition? That's a great question. It's the biggest problem right now because Ukraine has only officially held dialogue with Lukashenko's regime and it's kept its embassy open in Minsk so that there is a representation of Zelensky's regime in Lukashenko's Belarus. And therefore, there's no real break at the moment. And I think Zelensky is kind of hedging his bets, hoping that Lukashenko will eventually come round and decide that he will be a, a neutral and, and not take part in the war. And at the moment, Ukraine is not really attempting to approach the Belarusian opposition. What cards does Lukashenko have now? Well, I think he's just got to go the same way that Russia goes. He's really no alternative. He's just hoping for some kind of... Well, I think ideally the, the thing would be a settlement in Ukraine, but I don't see any possibility of a settlement because neither side can really be satisfied with what's happened so far. And for Ukraine, a settlement is tantamount to, to surrender and loss of territory. So I think you will see this sort of passive support for Putin and silent following of orders, kowtowing, if you like, to Putin and his speeches, asking for more money to stay in power. So do you believe that Belarus will survive into the 21st century or has it already lost its independence to Russia, that it's all but in name being annexed? I think that much depends now on the progress of the war in Ukraine. I think that Lukashenko is definitely marching from a point of a relatively full sovereignty to a no sovereignty. He has not yet completely sold out the sovereignty of the country. There is still a lot of attributes of the sovereign country. But yes, this is basically the deal where he has been selling to Russia various levers that Russia can use to control Belarus, including trade, military, cooperation, political control, media. And this was done in exchange for economic and political support by Russia. Security analyst James Scher agrees. He says while Lukashenko had little choice but to go along with Putin's war plans, his fate is now inextricably tied to Putin's. If Russia were to lose the war, and I mean end up in disarray and end up seriously damaged, then there is little doubt in my mind, minds of many others, and possibly Lukashenko's as well, that his days in Belarus are numbered that everything would turn upside down. So now for the first time, despite this past record of very good relations with Ukraine, he now needs Russia to win. And that removes any dilemma for the West as far as what Belarus is. Short of direct intervention, apart from that, it is a full accomplice of Russia now in the war. Is there a better response required from NATO, from Europe to Belarus? Maybe not enough attention is being paid, but all right, let's pay attention. Then what do we do about it? I don't think we have any cards to play in this situation. The key to unlocking all the puzzles involving Belarus, involving Baltic region security, involving position of Poland, is to ensure that Russia is defeated in Ukraine. Everything hinges on the outcome of the war in Ukraine. For the 10 million Belarusians living under Lukashenko's repressive regime and the hundreds of thousands of compatriots living in exile, like Artyom Shrybin, their future and the future of their country lies in the outcome of a war 
most of them don't support. Oh, it's crucial. I mean, there is nothing more important now. If Russia is defeated in Ukraine, this is one setup for Lukashenko, something that is very unsustainable for him, something that is very risky for him, something that creates a lot of incentives for him to, again, try to maneuver, try to distance himself from Moscow, or go down the same abyss, basically. If Russia wins, or if Russia manages to secure some kind of truce, some kind of uh, ceasefire on its terms, or something that keeps Putin's regime in place for a decade and not depleted of economic resources, then we would foresee even deeper penetration of Russian business and Belarus, Russian military and Belarus. We would see Belarusian regime becoming even more domestically violent and confident in its violence. And so you see that the trajectory of this war directly affects the chances for democracy in Belarus, but also independence of Belarus. Belarusian political analyst Artyom Schreibman. My other guests were Lithuanian historian Rustus Kamantajus, Professor David Marples from the University of Alberta, and James Scher from the Estonian-based International Centre for Defence and Security. This Rear Vision was produced by me, Kathy Van Extel, and sound engineer Bella Tropiano for ABCRN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.